Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. Do you ever wish someone would just stop talking? As I ask that question, you might be smirking because you're thinking, yeah, I have somebody particular in mind. Or maybe you have a group of people that you'd love who, to just stop saying everything they're thinking. Well, hold that thought, and I hope that you're not thinking about me, but uh, I understand. You know, sometimes that's how we feel on a Sunday morning. In our passage this morning, we have one person who is a Christian talk about Jesus with another person who's not yet a Christian. And by the end of their conversation, the person who previously had never heard of Jesus is baptized as one of his followers and is filled with joy. For some of us, we might be thinking of the line by Vizzini from The Princess Bride, inconceivable. Because the reality that is most familiar to many of us is that we neither experience nor expect joyful outcomes from conversations with people who don't already share our beliefs. And that cuts always, I think. In fact, I was at a uh, New Year's Eve party last night where there were a couple times in the conversation where uh, a potentially controversial topic came up and said, we're not going to talk about that, redirect the conversation. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, when I hear Christians talk, it doesn't produce joy at all. And maybe that's what's kept you outside of the faith, or maybe that's what's pushed you out of a personal faith that you previously held, or out of a faith community that you were previously part of. Even if you are a follower of Jesus, as you listen to the loudest voices that are broadcast most widely through the multimedia public town square, Maybe you also cringe. Perhaps you're deeply embarrassed by what the most publicized Christian so-called influencers say. And on any given day, you can probably see someone rage posting on social media or walk through an intersection in Philadelphia where someone is preaching, air quotes, about Jesus in a way that many of us would consider aggressive, unkind, and deeply unrepresentative of him. Far too often, even the talk of other Christians steals or quells our joy. So in such a time and place as ours, do we really need more words, more speaking about Jesus or God or faith or the Bible? Or would followers of Jesus just be better served to observe a vow of silence and quietly do the right thing and hope that God extends his kingdom perhaps through telepathy. In 1927, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis articulated his now famous counter-speech argument. And he wrote, if there be time to expose through discussion falsehood and fallacies, to avert evil by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. 
The translation of that is the best way to fight bad speech is with more speech, with better speech. This year, uh, our sister churches across the Liberty Communion around Philadelphia and beyond are reviewing our mission as a communion, as, as local churches, to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for our local neighborhoods. And our mission includes speaking as the very presence of Jesus here on and around the main line. The best speech is that which tells of Jesus and brings joy. And so during this Christmas tide, the Christmas season and epiphany, it reminds us each year that we should be ready to say, like the angel to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all peoples. I suspect uh, that uh, we have seen many packages delivered the past few weeks. So this morning, we're going to look at how God, in a sense, packages and delivers this message of joy, where joy is sent, what's in it, and who receives it. So where first does God send joy? Not always where we would expect it. Surprising, not just because they're supernatural. First, God tells him, leave Samaria. That's a place where crowds of people are believing in Jesus through Philip's teaching. Philip has just planted not only a church, but started an, a movement across an entire region and people group. But God tells him, stop that. I'm sending you someplace else. And the place he sends him is the Jerusalem-Gaza Road. Now, he starts in Samaria. That's about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And Gaza is about 93 miles uh, from Samaria. So he sends them someplace on this stretch of road, which involves a 30 to 93-mile trip, probably on foot, for a meeting that's literally on the side of a highway in a desert or deserted place. Why would God send a proven and successful evangelist to the middle of nowhere? Because he knew that that's exactly where this man would be, when he will be there, and at what time he'd be reading this particular passage of Isaiah so that Philip could start a conversation with him about it. This is like a divine cal calculus problem. If Philip is traveling at speed X from starting point A and an Ethiopian chariot is traveling at speed Y from starting point B, at what point will M, will the Ethiopian meet Philip? And if you're a humanities person, I'm sorry if you're twitching right now. That's all the math for today. Remember, he was just in Jerusalem, a much closer, more convenient meeting place. Why didn't God just send Philip there? But in God's wisdom, this was the moment when he would be ready to hear about Jesus. Where do we speak joy? Wherever God is already moving us and sending us for opportunities that we might not even know that he's orchestrating. From God's perspective, there are no meaningless movements because he is divinely orchestrating all things. And it's not a creepy, manipulative uh, puppet show, but it's a beautiful and interwoven tapestry or story of which, of which each of us is a part. And this matters both in the wide-angle lens, 
the big picture of our current culture and in the ultra-high density details of our lives. Wide-angle perspective. Speaking about Jesus is really unpopular. Newsflash, that's almost always been the case. In fact, Philip started off in the church in Jerusalem. He can't be there because of persecution that scattered that church. Our present culture, we feel the pressure of it being deeply post-Christian and secular. And people around us, some people that we know, will argue that Christian ideas are not only wrong or outdated or silly, but they're actually harmful or dangerous. But here's the thing. If God's in charge of all of history, he's also in charge of all the specific obstacles and challenges and pressures that we feel in any given moment. And God may be using them so that we can have just the right conversations about just the right topics with just the right people at just the right time. God orchestrates this encounter in extraordinary ways, but he's also in charge of every detail of everyday life. So there are people in our lives, there are people in your life who are here alongside you on the main line, maybe in Wayne or Radnor or Berwyn or Paoli or Wynwood or Ardmore or Havertown or Conshohocken or Newtown Square, webs of relationship with close friends or strangers. And right now, God might be orchestrating opportunities for us to ask someone, would you like to talk about that more? If God's the one in charge of giving us these opportunities, however little confidence you might have in yourself, he actually thinks you're qualified because he's put you in those particular moments and those particular places, and he knows that he's prepared you the way that he has done. It's kind of like uh, attending someone else's New Year's Eve party, which is wonderful. If you hosted, thank you so much. But if you're attending somebody else's party, like they've done all the heavy lifting, and you just get to show up and enjoy some good food and some good drink and talk with people that you meet there, like Philip does here. But this is here. This is where we get a little bit nervous. What am I supposed to say? Look at what Philip does. The Spirit's final prompt is for him to jog up alongside the chariot as it trundles along. Not sure he was a runner, uh, but he was able to do this. And he hears the Ethiopian reading Isaiah. And this actually would have been very normal at the time. Ancient people had much less opportunity to read and access to books, and so reading was usually done out loud. So before Philip says anything, he listens first. Then once he hears what's being read, he sees his opportunity, and then he doesn't need any more prompting. He's able to do this part himself. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip is really just doing what Jesus did first. What's striking about Jesus' life is how much emphasis he put on speaking and teaching. He could do miracles anytime, but he mostly wanted to talk to people, often at dinner parties, by the way. The Gospel of Mark records very little of Jesus' teaching, and uh, yet Mark tells us that when demands for healing started to crowd out Jesus' schedule, he would relocate specifically in order to focus again on speaking with people. There's one story where four men carry their paralyzed friend into the presence of Jesus, and the first thing he says is not, 
rise, take up your mat, and walk, which he gets to. But first, son, your sins are forgiven. Luke tells us that Jesus summarized the whole Bible as the story of his death and his resurrection so that repentance and forgiveness of his sins in his name should be proclaimed to all nations. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus' instructions to make disciples, student followers of Jesus, by teaching them and baptizing them. Exactly what Philip does here. Now, there are some extraordinary elements, but what Philip does is so simple. He listens first so that he knows what's on this man's mind and then starts there where he already is. For goodness sake, the guy's already reading the Bible. How straightforward is that? And if someone is able or willing to read the Bible together with us, that's a great opportunity. In fact, most people are more open to having conversations about faith and religion now than they have been in past years. But God doesn't just use Bibles to convert people. If that were the case, we could just be a publishing house. And I like books, so I'd probably be good with that. But that's not how God works. He uses the book, he uses the word, but he also uses people and conversations. So what are our qualifications? If you're a person and can communicate God can use you to talk to somebody else about Jesus. And then finally, these are just everyday situations when you think about them. Strip out all the surprising aspects of it. Ultimately, this conversation happens in a chariot on a journey. Good news, we don't need a chariot. Our forms of transportation, I think, are vastly more comfortable. But a car ride together with someone could be an opportunity to have a really great conversation about Jesus. And the fact that this is Philip uh, having the conversation is really quite fascinating because he's somebody who was qualified for office in the church. In a church of thousands in Jerusalem, he was one of seven who was chosen to help the 12 apostles. But in his personal ministry is most influential, actually, when he loses his leadership position because he has to leave his church because of persecution and then eventually ends up preaching to multitudes in Samaria and then to this single high-profile individual. Too often, I think we think you need to have a ministry job or ministry credentials to be able to do ministry, to serve or speak about Jesus. But there are aspects of ministry that are equally well done and sometimes better done by one is surprised, right? That's my job. You expect the peanut butter salesman to tell you peanut butter is a good idea, right? But when an ordinary Christian talks about Jesus, many people find it much more convincing and attractive. And Philip is a great example of that in his own life and in this story. He's qualified to be a leader, but he doesn't just tell people about Jesus when it's his job. He tells people about Jesus whenever he gets the chance. And he's sensitive to and responsive to opportunities that God provides him to do so. And that makes him a speaker of joy to others. Now, who receives the message of joy found in Jesus? Interestingly, we don't get his name, but other than that, we learn a lot about him. He's an Ethiopian, and uh, at the time, the kingdom, the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia included uh, all of modern-day Ethiopia, modern-day Sudan, and much of the region around it. It was a vast kingdom at times. 
And in Palestine, uh, Ethiopian was kind of a blanket term for a black African in Palestine, as this man likely was. He's also very influential. He serves the Candace, or the Kandake, of Ethiopia. Because the Ethiopian Candace was not a name, but the office of queen mother who oversaw the actual day-to-day -day affairs of her son's kingdom. He's the treasury, treasury secretary of Ethiopia. So he's wealthy. He's trusted because he's allowed to take this journey. And he's able to afford a trip to Jerusalem, purchase a costly souvenir, a hand-copied book of Isaiah. And then he's also highly educated and open-minded because he's willing to learn from and have a conversation with Philip, who's a religious refugee traveling on foot. At the same time, not everything's wonderful for him. As a eunuch, he would have been castrated, probably before puberty. Eunuchs were often employed as royal servants because they were considered less dangerous or risky attendants to serve the queen or the queen mother or to supervise the king's harem. Without offspring, they wouldn't be uh, angling to advance their own family's political fortunes. And without those family ties, they were also conveniently expendable, easier to replace or execute without wider political repercussions. Many eunuchs enjoyed political influence because they had physical proximity to rulers, but they were, uh, and they were useful, reliable, but not always respected. So they were considered to lack the virility expected of a real man. Now, he had just traveled to Jerusalem and while there, he would have experienced yet another form of exclusion. He's traveled at least 700 miles and probably more. But then he would have been stopped at the outer courts of the temple and told, thus far you can come, but no further. As a non-Jew, he could have come no closer than the court of the Gentiles. And as a eunuch, he would never have been allowed to even convert to Judaism. So unable to participate in temple worship, excluded from membership among God's people, he nevertheless pursues God through the study of his word. And Isaiah, if you've read it recently, is a really long book. So if he started from the beginning, he's been reading for quite a while to end up in chapter 53 out of 66 books. But the question he asks is fascinating. Because right before the quoted passage, Isaiah describes the rejection and suffering of a man of sorrows, but that God would use his affliction to make him a substitute who brings peace and an end to the hostility between humanity and God. But the Ethiopian doesn't ask the question of how. He asks the question, who? Who is Isaiah talking about? Who is this person who will do this? And so Philip says to the Ethiopian, let me tell you about Jesus. Now they have a conversation. We don't actually get much of the details of the conversation itself. But at the end, verse 36, the Ethiopian asks one last big question. What prevents me from being baptized? How many times do you think he's asked that kind of a question? What prevents me from having a family? I'm a eunuch. 
what prevents me from being accepted and respected by my peers? I'm a eunuch. What prevents me from entering the temple? Up to this point, there's always been some bar that he can't clear because of an identity that was not actually his choice and that was enforced upon him by others. Why was that? Now, was God just too picky in the Old Testament and Jesus learned to loosen up? No, the Old Testament law was actually a teaching aid, and it spoke about physical defects in a way to speak about the spiritual defects we all have. Eunuchs were physically impotent and unable to reproduce. And spiritually, God tells us we are all spiritual eunuchs. We are unable to bring forth spiritual good, spiritual life. We are impotent before God to do good. And that's why we all need an answer to the question of who. Who can do for me before God what I cannot? Who can fix what's broken in our world and in my life? Who can cleanse what we or I have stained and soiled? Who can do in me what I cannot? Who can work through me for good to others as I cannot on my own? Who can help me speak with joy about him when I can't do it in my own strength or confidence? And here, finally, in the good news of Jesus, he hears there's no bar that he can't or doesn't clear. There's no requirement that he fails. There's nothing to prevent him or us from being fully welcomed and accepted by God because of Jesus. He satisfied every requirement. He has absorbed every shortcoming. So what prevents him what prevents you or I from being baptized, from being identified with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, from enjoying adoption to the family, very family of God? Nothing. Nothing prevents you. Are you tired of being told that you're not good enough, that you don't belong, or... Are you tired of the voice that has pushed you throughout your life that tells you there's more you should do or that you've fallen short? The best way to fight bad speech is with more speech and better speech. And that's why we exist and seek to speak as the very presence of Jesus here on and around the main line. We get to say what Jesus says. Repent. Believe the good news. Your sins are forgiven. God has done and is doing what we're impotent to do ourselves. And nothing prevents you from being joined to Jesus in faith and baptism so that what God said to Jesus at his baptism might be his word to you now. You are my beloved child, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for the privilege it is to hear the, noise, the message of joy in Jesus. Father, I, I pray that you'd help us to rest in it, 
bask in who Jesus is for us. And we thank you that in him we have full access to you and in the future can look forward to enjoying your presence endlessly in eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.